Greetings, podcast listeners. This is Brian Zimmerman, host of Jazz's Backstage Pass. Just want to let you know a little bit about today's episode. It was originally recorded as a video interview back on May 29th and features a conversation between Jazz's publisher and founder, Michael Fagan, and the Canadian jazz rock superstar, Gino Vanelli. Now, that video can still be viewed on our website, jazzes.com, but hey, you want to listen to it here go right on ahead you do you podcast listeners all right go ahead and enjoy the show thanks a lot that's stupid all right singer gino vanelli is here to talk about his amazing career and to share some of what's going on for him right now he will be doing so with jazz's publisher michael fagan i'm brian zimmerman and i just want to stop and welcome you to the Jazz's Happy Hour. All right. So yeah, before we get into today's programming, let me just uh, recommend another ECM album that I think you're really going to like. It is by accordionist Jean-Louis Martinier and guitarist Kevin Siddiqui. It's called Rivage. It's a really nice duo album. It has that kind of left bank, rive gauche, chanson feel. Um, Pour yourself a glass of wine. Go sit out on the patio in the afternoon with a nice book or some good company. Yeah, it's exactly the soundtrack for that. To learn more about this album and all the other ECM stuff, check out ecmrecords.com. want to also let you know about Blue Sound, an award-winning uh, wireless high-res sound system that lets you play music in any and every room throughout your home. It's one of those systems where you can kind of sync your music from your phone with the speakers, then bounce it from the kitchen to the living room to the bedroom. Blue Sound products are audiophile-grade systems, and uh, that's what every jazz fan deserves. So you can learn more at bluesound.com or by checking out our website, jazzis.com, where we have put together a Blue Sound buyer's guide. Let me also remind you that our summer 2020 issue is available right now, and I mean right now. Here it is. It is the uh, summer issue all about fusion. Great cover story on uh, Chikoria as well. We talked to some other young fusion players who are keeping the fusion flame alive. We got a fusion, essential fusion discography in there. It is awesome. Uh, we've also put all of the articles from that issue onto our website as HTML web articles. You can read them now. You will need a subscription, but fear not. We are offering a sub special subscription offer to Jazz's Happy Hour viewers for just 99 cents per month for three months, you will receive unlimited digital access, which means you can read every story that appears in that print magazine. Plus, we'll enroll you to receive our next print issue, which is coming out in the fall and is all about the art of the album, collecting albums, listening to albums, album art, producing albums. It's really great. And uh, yeah, you enroll now, you get all the web content plus complimentary print issue come fall. Well, all right. It is Thursday, May 28th, and uh, I don't want to take up too much time in this intro because, like I said, our guest is Gino Vanelli. Yeah, he has been bridging the worlds of jazz and rock for a long time now. You know his hits. I just want to stop living inside myself, wild horses. Uh, he's going to be on the show in a minute, and he'll be talking with his longtime friend, Jazz's publisher, Michael Fagan, who, hey, look, just so happened to walk into the joint. Michael, are you there? I am here. Hello, Brian. Hey, man. Fancy you? running into you in a place like this. Yes. Uh, you come here often. I do. I, I'm here a lot. <laughs> That's right, man. Well, hey, I, before we get in, before we bring Gino in, I just want to know, how long have you known him? You know, it's back in the 90s. I mean, I've been a fan of Gino's uh, for 
decades. I mean, literally from his early albums on A&M. Um, but in the 90s, when I started my record company, um, I started having conversations with Gino. It was that he was actually introduced to me personally through Jimmy Haslip, okay. uh, who played on Brother to Brother. Right. And um, and then we had we had some really great conversations over the years. Uh, we'll talk about it with Gino. When I opened Jazz's Nightlife in Boca Raton, we're like, who do we want as our grand opening? I said, I got to get Gino Vanelli. Right on, man. Well, look who else just so happened to walk into the joint. The one and only Gino Vanelli. Gino, are you there, Good man? See you guys. Hey, yes, I'm here. Welcome, welcome, and thank you for being part of the Jazz's Happy Hour. We like to do a toast each morning. This one's to you, man, and to you, Michael. To you, okay. Gino. Brian. Conversation. All right, I got one here, too. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will let you two do your thing, and I'm going to go schmooze with the bartender. So Is this have a great talk amongst yourself? I'm getting a little verklempt. Talk amongst yourselves. Exactly. Talk amongst yourselves. Yeah. yeah so, we'll do. Uh, so long, guys. Hi, Gino. Hey, Michael. Long it's time great to see you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been too long. Um, you know, speaking about fusion, um, I've always considered you the ultimate fusion artist. I was introduced to fusion through Return to Forever and bands like that. But when then I heard your music, I said, now here's someone who fuses almost every music I love. How did you come from a boy in Montreal who played the drums to essentially move into almost every genre that was related to jazz, pop, classical, symphonic, almost opera. Um, how did that come about? Where did you get that epiphany? Well, you know, first of all, it started when we were all very young. My dad was very much into many, many eclectic kinds of music, including jazz, big band, opera, all the things, uh, Latin music. And he really introduced us to a lot of sophisticated music when I was a very, very young boy. Five or six, I knew who Coltrane and Miles Davis and Sonny Rollins were and, and all the big bands, Artie Shaw and those guys, Stan Kenton. And, and I was lucky enough to be a drummer in a relief band in a club called the Casaloma in Montreal. In that relief band, you know, we'd get in like Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa and Stan Kenton to play and Duke Ellington and people like that. <clears throat> And uh, I got to see those guys live, and there was no better experience than seeing that live. And that was my my high watermark, you know. So that was to me what music was. It's almost like saying in in 1955, you know, if you didn't play Stan, Steinway D, you weren't playing a real piano. So for me, that was what music should be, and I tried to incorporate that. The one caveat for me, uh, compared to most instrumentalists that were using fusion, is that I was really, really uh, inclined to want to be a songwriter. So going back further still to, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein and, and Cole Porter and Sammy Kahn and Johnny Mercer and Jerome Kern and uh, Ira Gershwin, George Gershwin. I mean, those are really the, again, the icons and the, the, the examples, the models that I wanted to base my skills after. So trying to mix all those uh, styles into one became almost a life quest. And uh, it, it was difficult because I was really not very good at any of them, but I had the concept in my head and I kept trying to fuse them and fuse them. And I had my Cole Porter book of lyrics with me, always looking at well, what would he do? What would he do? And 
so on and so forth. And um, mm-hmm. so finally, with, with the years, I started getting better at it. But that's really the, the real, you know, practical reason why I was into it. I was exposed to it. When we were mm-hmm. kids, we went uh, to see the Montreal Symphony every other Thursday or every, I think, Thursday of the month. Um, our school went to see the Montreal Symphony rehearse. The first time I heard Daphne and Cloy <laughs> or um, Arabesque, you know, mm-hmm. or, or Claire de Lune by Debussy. I just said, I think I just, you know, perished and, you know, went to heaven. <laughs> because that kind of music, French Impressionism, I, I felt that a lot of jazz roots came from French Impressionism. And um, surely enough, it did. So Ravel and, mm-hmm. and uh, Debussy and Foray, and some of the other composers too, but uh, those were the three that I really, really studied and listened to days on end, trying to understand how they moved without exposing their tonics and how they moved from harmony to harmony and taking the melody line from the last chord that was played and maybe the third of that chord making starting mm-hmm. a new melody with that and they 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 just you know learn how to modulate in ways that was uniquely their own and i i really based a lot of my music off, you know off of that too well you know i was a a uh, you know into the beatles uh back in when they were releasing albums I yeah. then uh, moved to progressive rock after uh, they s- quit. <laughs> um, and then when I was introduced to jazz fusion, it was really, it was brother to brother for me that brought me into your world. I, of course, went back and listened to all your previous albums on A&M. And, and then I was fortunate enough to see you perform brother to brother, that tour in Tampa, yeah. Florida. Yeah. And, and what happened that night, um, I, I could say it actually changed my life, certainly from a music listener and, and possibly even planted the seed to do what I'm doing today. And that is, I saw a performer on stage who had truly a wonderful voice. I knew that you wrote the music. I knew that you were up there being the consummate performer. I saw you being a conductor, an arranger. I saw all that happening on one stage. And I said, my God. This, this musician, this artist has it all. Can sometimes that blessing also be a curse? Well, the only thing, Michael, that's a curse about it is that, you know, you're, um, you're constantly on and, and you're, you're constantly want to create and you constantly, when leaves rustle in a tree, I hear tonality in it and I, mm-hmm. I want to write about it. Um, I want to write about what I feel constantly. I never stop writing. I just finished another three songs in the last uh, maybe month that I'm going to get in the studio and record in July. Um, and the, the curse is that it never goes away, and that and that you 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 know you you're late and you're delayed and you don't answer your wife properly, <laughs> and that your head's in the clouds. You know, somewhere some would say somewhere else. But um, and the blessing is is that you constantly measure. Uh, where you're at, and 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 I could listen to brother to brother and understand that's where I was at and that's how I felt, and I could listen to the last record and understand that I, I didn't choose fusion as much as I chose, you know, Americana with, with poetry mm-hmm. and some mm-hmm. jazz maybe and 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 some other maybe um, contemporary uh, songwriting form, 
but I could really measure where I where I'm at almost as if I'm looking at pictures of myself from from six years old you know, to now, and you could see you know yourself you gradually either evolve or decline, you know. Right, right. But uh, that's the good part about it, you know, that that you you do have a body of work that you could look upon. Yeah, and you, you, the one of the look, I, I've in addition to listening to everything you've ever done, I've uh, don't be weirded out by this, but I've studied you. And, and, and I've studied your audience. And the thing that I've noticed is sort of to use the cliche, to know Gino Vanelli is to love Gino Vanelli. And what I mean by that is that your fans aren't just casual fans. They're all in. Yeah, they, they can't wait to see you wherever you're playing. I remember when you performed twice at my club, people came from the tens and 20, 10,000 miles away to yeah, see you and they were passionate and wanted to meet you and they they brought their LPs and CDs and they wanted them signed. And then the other thing happens. There's, you know, obviously we we all want greater base of people that see the kind of work that we do. But then when you're introduced like what we did is we invited a lot of people to the grand opening that you performed at which we'll get out in a minute because that was a that was a funny day. Um that never heard Gino Vanelli but I know that they left that show saying, I just witnessed something. I am so glad I came tonight. I'm going to go buy Gino Vanelli music because I was just introduced to a music that I'd never heard before. I didn't know that it could come out of one musical genius. And, and I don't say that lightly. I don't, I don't call a lot of people musical geniuses, but I think it's the way that you've worked so hard and have continually improved over the years and your fans follow you. You know, Trisha just asked me a question. Uh, my wife, um, when did you write None So Beautiful as the Brave? And um, uh, she thought I wrote it you know, right after 9-11. And I said, no, I, I actually wrote it in 1989. And uh, she asked me, why did you write it? You know, there was no wars going on. You know, it really, were there any heroes to speak of? Was there anything that drew you to, you know, an understanding of what happens to military guys when they come back and so on and mm -hmm. so forth? And this is what we can talk about, the blessing and the curse. One day I just started reading up on the Civil War and some of the shell-shocked people from World War One, and some of the people uh, that came back from World War II not knowing what they had that was a form of PTSD. No one called it by that name. They just call it war fatigue or battle fatigue, which is another euphemism. And I just thought that writing None So Beautiful felt like it needed to be written. And I just tucked it away. And I never, um, I didn't record it till seven years later on the Yonder Tree album. And then re-recorded it the, re the way I really wanted to record it with, uh, with an orchestra. Um, and the Metropolitan Orchestra here up in Portland and made a video for a fallen hero who was part of um, the um, the team that was gone to save, I think it was Marcus Luttrell and those guys up in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was from our area here in, in, in Oregon. So I decided I was going to redo it and de dedicate it to him. So for me, you know, what you're talking about is is... You know, I guess you can't write unless you're feeling it in your bones, you're feeling it in your heart, in your chest. So that 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 curse is that you're constantly feeling, and you constantly want to share. You constantly, but you realize, lest you repeat yourself musically, you need to keep studying. 
So in the last few days, I've been studying a lot, listening to a lot of Brad Maldow's new stuff and what he's mm-hmm. trying to approach, how he's approaching his fusion, playing some synths and this and that, getting a little more modern, really coming out of the bop era, you know, and really using things that are a lot kind of cooler for today and mm-hmm. um, constantly doing that and listening to uh, Martin Kaler's, you know, uh, playing. He's just a phenomenal mm-hmm. guitar player. Sure, and so sure. was Tommy Emmanuel, you know, and so listen to them constantly, YouTubing them and all, looking at their fingering, their harmonies and how Tommy really employs jazz with Americana is really something fantastic. Making sure if you play any guitar, you understand keeping the strings open and singing and ringing is is the aim of the acoustic guitar. And how do you do that with some of the really complex polychords in jazz? And he's managed to really master a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So um, it's the constant feeling and the constant searching, the constant listening. I'm going to be doing some uh, concert, uh, some concerts with a. I don't know if you know Jacob Carlson from from Sweden. No. Oh he's, yes, I do. Yes. He's a wonderful piano player. He's really in the style of Keith Jarrett. I mean, he really yeah. had that same kind of weaving style, and that hesitant melody, melodic style that that keeps you in space keeps you in mystery and so we're we're planning to to do some concerts in 2022 now that everything's been backed up to to, 2021 um and everybody and you know in my camps is are you sure you want to do that you know because you know people don't know you just going out with a piano player but i i tell people that you know on our our team it's important for me to do that because i because i discover new things about myself let alone Jacob himself, piano player, but how a singer and a piano player could create actually a 90 minute show yeah. and, and, and what you got to do to not only entertain the audience, but really please yourself, piano player and, and singer and how it, it's fun to do and how you make it work. And lo and behold, you just get better at yeah. being yourself when you put yourself in slightly uncomfortable situations. And, and I've noticed you do that a lot in your in your live shows. Um, I wouldn't say there are easier Gino Vanelli songs, but you tend to tackle the difficult ones that, um, you know, I, I think someone who really knows your music is like, I wonder how he's going to do this live. And and do you do that on purpose? Do you take the, the yes. more difficult compositions? Well, I, I take the compositions that I think uh, were universally my my best at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, because every every era has this sort of push button kind of songs that you know were good for the time, uh, but some you know survive the test of time, and I want to redo those. I want to put them on stage with the band, and I always come up with some kind of new twist to the arrangement while keeping most of the intention of the of the original arrangement. I just rearrange the river must flow, keep on walking and the rhythm of romance for, for our upcoming shows in Europe, which I think are going to be pulled, pushed to 2021. But they're hell of a lot of fun. It's a hell of a lot of fun to go back into seeing Coke machines on the Ho Chi Minh Trail uh, with some, you know, really more intricate groove and, and giving some really cool parts to the horn players. And it's a big kick, you know, Michael, to do that, you know, and there's yeah. really no, in the end, there's really no other reason to be touring at uh, uh, my age, other than I think I can do it well and I have a lot of fun doing it. And the band just wow. kicks. Wow. So so I'm going to take you back. I know I'll, you're, you're asked this a lot, but I'll, I'll segue it from a, a, a conversation I had with Herb Albert. Yeah. And I was talking to Herb and um, 
I said, you know, Herb, there was an artist that you signed years ago that truly should have been one of the world's best known, spectacular pop rock stars in the world. He said, let me stop you, Gino Benelli. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even have to say your name. Of all the greats that Herb signed, he knew what I was talking about. Can you tell our viewers how that all happened? It's a, it's a fantastic story. I, just, I, I, I can't hear it enough. Well, you know, I was always um, inclined toward the mystery. When I was uh, five or six years old, my mother told me it was time to start going to church. I was born nominally as, as a Roman Catholic, but nobody really practiced it very much. You know, they had my mom. Yeah, she just passed from COVID. Um, yeah, I, so if I could mom, stop you for a second. Yes. I, I just wanted to say, Gino, that um, I wanted to show that photo. Um, our condolences. Uh, the Jazz's team, our viewers, uh, for your loss. And Gino, uh, we just want to tell you, we send our prayers and, and we're here with you. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, you know, today's her birthday. Oh, so happy birthday. She she passed just two, three weeks ago. And um, uh, I'll just say a word about that. Uh, you sure, know, please. Without, without pain, uh, COVID took her within nine hours. It just went boom, boom. And she was in, in a coma and she just slipped away. And, and in a way she was, uh, you know, um, delivered from the punishment of what that, that terrible virus can be. And so because her, her immune system was such at 90, almost 93 years old, she just passed uh, very quickly. So in that sense, I'm very, very, very grateful that she did. On the other hand, I'm still pissed for all the dishonesty that's gone on. And um, this, this shouldn't have happened, ought not to have happened. And um, mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. But yeah. let that alone. Now that now the good part. Uh, the good part is that my mother said it's time for you to go to church, and I said yes. Yeah, but you and dad don't go to church. I said well. She says yeah, but don't do as I do. Do as I say. <laughs> <laughs> so I I I really reluctantly went to church. Uh, I was not almost six years old, and I was wondering what it was going to be like because I knew it was going to be in Latin and so on and so forth. Well, let me tell you, Michael. When I got in to the church. And a hundred-piece choir was singing Panis Angelicus and some other hymns with the pipe organ. Really, I said, this was a very uh, spiritual experience for me uh, to be in church because nothing sounded like a hundred voices singing those hymns with a, with a pipe organ and those harmonies from, from those Gregorian chants. Mm -hmm. And it struck me very deeply that, that if I could be moved by by something like that i kept a very very close associate association with those parts of me so that day in los angeles uh 1972 uh i had been trying i lived in new york for uh, for a year and a half and came close but i moved to los angeles for four months knocked on every record company door and nobody wanted to know anything and um our money ran out and we had to leave los angeles and that morning, I went, I stopped into a church. It was 5.30 in the morning. And I said, I need to think about this. I cannot leave without something happening. So I went into the church and I fell asleep, basically, for four or five hours and um, woke up 
about 10 30 11 o'clock and went back to the motel where joe and i were staying and joe was still asleep and i took the sock out of his mouth that i left there the night before <laughs> and i said joe we're going somewhere so wake up and put anything on so we skedaddled out of the orange motel it was called it was five bucks a day and, uh yeah and so i got grabbed my guitar we went to we parked ourselves in front of the gates of a and m on la brea and uh, of course the guard came down and, and said that uh, you know i shouldn't wait here and i i retorted by saying it was public pri property <laughs> and uh three hours later i saw her come out of his office through the gates and walk across the parking lot i dropped my guitar and i just ran through and the guitar i mean the the the, the guard you know cursed and knew that that was going to happen then he followed me of course he had a, a he was a vietnam vet and had a limp and by the time i got to herb uh herb was shocked uh and then johnny grabbed my arm and started ha starts hauling me off and i gave herb one last look and herb just something in him just said wait a minute johnny and he he beckoned me to come over and said what do you want i said um you got to listen to me you know listen to some of the songs i've written and he just paused and i thought he was going to say well either or either yes or get out of here and never show your face here again and uh he wrote me a little pass to come back in 30 minutes and of course the guard grumbled because you know he lost his authority totally but later we became good friends johnny and i <laughs> and um so i came back and with my guitar and i played him Crazy Life, Powerful People, Mama Coco, you know, Lady, a bunch of songs, you know, for, uh, from the first two albums. And he had his head down, you know, just laying down on, on the desk. And he just picked up his head and said, just welcome to the family. And and so I recorded seven records, you know, for for right. right. And, and, and what I recall from those days is you were putting out at least one album a year you, you in succession. Yeah, uh, there was a lot of lot of recording output at that point. Yeah. Um, and then after that, you kind of pivoted you, some life changing Without, events. Yes. Because I signed with, with, uh, uh, Arista records at the time, Clive Davis. And, uh, our first album was successful. The night Walker album, uh, living inside myself is top 10 single on billboard. Um, and then I decided to do something different musically. And, um, we had a clash, you know, of, it was really we, we were at loggerheads with, with what I should be doing. And then I, you know, it was a question of having a vision. And yet I always was had an open mind. Well, maybe he's maybe he should influence me a little bit more. And then I would hear some of the songs he wanted me to do air supply songs. I said, well, you know, I can't do that. <laughs> and so I started losing faith in him and I started losing that trust that I thought I had. And he started losing his, I guess, his 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 buzz for me and uh then i i while i was on a and i'm sorry on arista i recorded the black cars record i knew it was a good record i knew it could be a big record worldwide and um he didn't want to release it at that point it got it got really personal while a lot of other record companies wanted to release it but he wouldn't let me go so this is where we got into it. that's why you didn't hear from me for a while so he blackballed like you yeah, that's basically what happened. You know, yeah. it's kind of a dirty word, but that's what happened. And um, and we uh, 
couldn't go anywhere. That's why it was released first in Europe because the Europeans didn't care what, what, he, what he thought, what he said. So I finally got out of that contract three or four years later, which is really a terrible period for me. And then I started working my way up. But then by that moment in time, which a lot of artists, whether it be, you know, George Michael or a few other artists that, you know, rest his soul, uh, that found out that when you kind of go, you know, uh, have a conflict with a, with a big company, namely a record company, especially in those days, you're going to lose because uh, they have time and other artists on their side and you have just yourself and not much time. Mm -hmm. So after four or five years, I found that suddenly my career lost momentum. And, um, but then new things happened. Black Cars was actually a big record for me worldwide. We started making videos. But, you know, Michael, by that time, by the 80s, I started feeling differently about wanting to be a pop artist, you know. I, I kind of liked mix, mixing fusion uh, for pop and all that. But by 1986, 87, the market really had changed. And people in the 70s were experimenting with fusion. And mm -hmm. the 80s, it started changing. People really were going for the buck instead of actually kind of committed to the music. I'm sure mm -hmm. you knew that and you felt that yourself. Absolutely. And uh, I think I came home one day and they, they told me that um, I was listening to the radio and I think they said the Michael Jackson album had hit uh, like five times diamond and it was like 50 million, right? And and I came home with kind of a sourpuss on my face and uh, Chris said, why, why, you know, the long face? I said, because... I think the business is forever changed. It used to be a million dollar business. Now it's a billion dollar business. Mm -hmm. And, and every sharpshooter and every shark now is going to be in our business. And they're not going to look at our, as artists, as music makers, they're going to look at artists as just cash cows. And I said, mm -hmm. what I got away with in the seventies, I won't be able to get away with that, you know, in the eighties and lo and behold, that was true. And, wow. and, and it, but I, the lesson for me was how to evolve and how to adapt. Mm -hmm. And if it meant, you know, less profit, but I wanted to do what I wanted to do, then so be it. Or it could mean just adding one or two elements or who knows what, what, you know, the formula is, but somehow, some way, Michael, I, um, I slogged my way through that and, um, <laughs> kept making records. And yeah. And you know, um, hits with wild horses yeah. and uh black cars was a very big hit hurts to be hurts to be in love was a very big hit worldwide so uh i found out that there was a world outside of the united states too that people were listening to music and these days you know i can go to many 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 countries and perform and um find that we have an audience so mm -hmm. again the the bad thing turned into somewhat of a blessing yeah and and um that's when we first met in the early nineties. Yeah. Um, I, I started this record label in the Verve group and yeah. uh, uh, who has now become a, a friend of mine, Chris Roberts was running what yeah. was called Polygram Classics and Jazz. Yep. And the Verve group lived under that. And we started this label and Polygram gave us a whole bunch of money and office space in New York. And my partner was Lee Rittenauer and Mark yep. Wexler. Yep. And, um, and so Chris one day said, so have you considered any artists that you're looking to sign? 
And of course, kind of like I wanted you to be the uh, our opening at Jazz's Nightlife, I said, yeah, I want to sign Gino Vanelli. And he just looked at me and smiled and he said, I already signed him. <laughs> and, <laughs> and talk about, you know, taking the air out of my cell. And I said, oh, uh, and, and that's what I think Yonder Tree was the first album you did yeah. uh, with, yeah. with, with Burr. And yeah. um, but it was it was great to see you on Verve uh, yeah. and, and it, it kind of, the happiness that I got, it was that Gino's back. Mm -hmm. You know, and Michael, I tell you something, when you really have the intention to want to do something uh, that's actually inside of you and you want to bloom all the way, you bloom towards your destiny. There's something about, we have very, very bad uh, I think very, very philistine or brutal uh, in a sense uh, images or, or, or explanations of what God is. Mm -hmm. But there's a kind of emotion to it all. There's kind of an intention and emotion and a feedback and, and a loop that's created by an intention. And we live in this. We live in sort of a sea of movement. And what movement you draw to yourself, what movement you, what ripple you put out, is many times what ripple comes back. Um, so, so with all those changes happening, whether it be on Verve or when I got to Verve, I wanted to record an, a jazz album like 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 Yonder Tree, only with different lyric bent. That's why you have a jazz kind of standard song like Walter Whitman, Where Are You? But who writes about Walter Whitman, you know? Uh, stuff like that and I want to do something an album again that fused a certain kind of lyric bent with all the jazz standards that I sort of knew and loved and then same thing with the next album on Verve with Slow Love and then when I decided that I want to fuse um, some classical music with my pop and contemporary sensibilities the, 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 the opportunity came to record Canto and and again, it's it's sort of a, a mysterious way how it happens because I perform for the Pope, and a lot of uh, some of the record companies that saw that performance at the Vatican absolutely want to sign me doing that kind of music, and uh, everyone said no at, at first. Why are you doing that? I said because my father would sing to me in Italian, and sometimes <laughs> French, and he sang a Spanish song for me, and I wanted to sing in those languages. And I wanted to do an orchestral record because I remember the days when the Montreal Symphony just totally blew me away. And I did. I got I got the opportunity to make on BMG one of my favorite albums that I've ever recorded called Canto. So when you talk about a career, I think careers are, are they don't happen just because, well, what am I going to do next? That's not the question. Mm -hmm. It's really how do I satisfy what's still burning inside of me? And how does it come out? Usually, like the adage, you start building it and things start, roads and pathways start opening up. And it's made me a, not only a, a profound and a firm believer in things outside myself and, and really in the interior worlds, but I see how it works. It's usually it's set by your own agenda. It's set by your intention. Mm -hmm. And as you probably well know that, you know, being in business and, and always cutting a path, you guys too have always cut a path, you know, uh, you know, pr promoting jazz and promoting music and promoting artists that really 
are sort of on the cutting edge of music is no easy task. You've got to constantly cut the path. It, there's no one laid out for you. And it, it is a road less traveled, as Robert Frost yeah. you know, would yeah. say. And the, great, the greatest thing about it, though, it gives you a firm belief in the interior worlds, that there are currents in the interior world that actually create the outer world. And they're not always reliable because you can't always see them for what they are. Sometimes it's a current you shouldn't be on, but you make your best guess, you make your best assessment. But those currents really do exist. And um, it's kind of like in a negative way. I mean, you, you, we don't see this virus, right? There's, there's nothing. You, we can't see it. It exists though, in a, a powerful way. And you must guard against it, right? This is why Absolutely. we're doing this like this now. This is yes. why you're in that studio. And so you have to develop the radar within you to observe those inner feelings, those inner worlds, and how they could create things in two years to come. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, they usually do, Michael. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the uh, before we get off the, the album of Canto, I remember at the, it was about the time when we met. And we were talking a lot on the phone and um, you were writing uh, music for your Canto album. And I remember, and I brag about this all the time that uh, I was talking to Gino Vanelli one day and he started, he was singing some of the, some of the lyrics that he was going to put on this great record that he made. And then a few months later, you sent me the album when you had completed it and I listened to it. And, you know, I always made fun of, I, I shouldn't say make fun, but I, when people cry at operas, I was like, what is that all about? <laughs> but I, I listened to Canto and I literally had tears in my eyes and I, I was in my car listening to it. I called you. I got your voicemail. I don't know if you remember this. And I said, Gino, I don't even know what to say. You are a renaissance man. Well, the you. fact that you could do that album amidst everything else you've done, I thought was, and it's, it's truly one of my favorites as well. Yeah, I, I think probably the... The, the best music piece, and there's probably uh, two of them, uh, the, the Last Days of Summer and De Esperanza. Uh, musically, I think I like those those the best. And I did a re-record of Wayward yeah. Lover on this last record. On the new I record. Like that. I really like that, how it turned out. You yeah. know, I was asking you know, my wife, I said, well, if you were to, I mean, I have 250 songs plus, you know, that I have recorded, <laughs> you know, have written. If you were to take five of my best, because we're talking about George and Ira Gershon, we're talking about Jerome Kern's best, Irving Berlin's best, Lennon McCartney's best, so on and so forth. I said, well, what would you think the five best are, you know, of, of mine? Well, she said, you know, last days of summer, gotta be. And then um, she said, gotta be none so beautiful as the brave. Mm -hmm. um, and she, her particular favorite is, is De Esperanza. And I said, why do you like that? And it's really because she said, you know, uh, that not being able to actually decipher the lyrics and filling in all the blanks herself, coupled with the music, puts her in different places. And that's, that's the best an artist could, you know, or a writer could hope for, you know. Yeah. You know, there's, there's one song, and it, I wouldn't say it's my favorite Gina Vanelli song, but it's the one that every time I listen to it, I just smile because of the energy. And that is the title track to Brother to Brother. And when I, and you see it live, all the energy 
that you have on stage, the other musicians on stage, yep. you can just feel it. You know, you're right. And let me tell you a little, you know, I wanted to be more methodical and a lot more analytical about the lyrics on that record. I wanted to really, really, uh, all, most of those lyrics on that record were working lyrics. I mean, the title, yes, a few lines. And, uh, but I, I said, okay, now I'm going to sit down and really finish the lyrics. Everybody told me, don't. It feels so right. Don't get too close to it. Stay away from it. Just say it the way it is. And I said, but I can't. I mean, these lines are repeating, or this is this is just too banal, and da da da. And uh, I remember that there's a similar story when uh, Paul Simon wrote "Bridge Over Troubled Water." He said uh, that those were working lyrics, and everybody told him, "No, well, you know, keep them. They're the they're really good." So in some ways, you know, brother to brother I, I, is uh, itself, the song itself is so fun to do live. And the shortcoming of some of the lyrics, the analogies, the meta, you know, the, the, the metaphors actually sometimes works for the song because it makes the song glide so quickly. And mm -hmm. it, it puts so much stress on, on, the, on the motion and the music and the melody. And so your, your, your mind is not taking time to actually be too affected by the, the theme, thematically. So there's something about brother to brother that has a little bit of a shortcoming, but the shortcoming actually makes it fly by a little bit more. So um, that was the last album I ever did that with. Uh, yeah. All the albums after that, I really sat down after all my rough lyrics, I would sit down and actually say, okay, this is where I'm going to use style and technique and skill to improve this, improve that. And sometimes it takes a long while, you know, because um, you're dealing with a little jigsaw piece that's, that's not filled in and you need to find the right piece. Um, this is where the study of some of the great lyricists, Johnny Mercer and so on. Um, I can't tell if anybody who's a, a, you know, aspiring songwriter that's listening to this right now, I can't stress enough to study Cole Porter and Johnny Mercer and, and Ira Gershwin, the old style writing, because they would not go for near rhymes, they went for perfect rhymes, which is the hardest always. And they would, they would say um, a million, there would be a million feelings in one short line. And, mm -hmm. and so succinctly put and so on the money, for instance, like night and day, you are the one, only you beneath the moon and under the sun, right? It can't be said better than that with the music. Mm -hmm. And so when you study that, you study their skills, uh, let it affect your songwriting. You may not use that style totally, but it's something, it's, it's really a rite of passage, you know, to go through. Wow. So when it comes to uh, brother, brother, and then we'll move on from that, mm -hmm. um, you, you seem to really seek out some pretty killer guitarists. Oh, yeah. And, and, and they, have to, they have to be killer, for instance, to play that song. Yep. Uh, and I think they're almost judged against each other. Like Carlos Rios did it like this, but in your current touring band, Jay Coder does it like this. And everyone's saying, which one do I like better? Well, there was, <laughs> you know, Mike Miller did it. Mike Miller, uh, yeah. Mike, Mike played with Chick, you know, for a while. And then Daryl Sturmer played with Dave Collins. I mean, yeah. uh, Phil Collins, yeah. Phil Collins, yeah. Phil, uh, yeah. 
for for a while and they both did a great version of of the solo but yeah you're right the guitar solo in brother to brother is a rite of passage for for a guitarist and, so I'll, uh, I'll tell you I, I don't mean to cut you off i got to tell you a funny story though yeah. all right so so when you were at the grand opening performed at the grand opening of jazz is i get a call from al demiola and al said you know i'm a huge gino fan um I'm, I'm coming to the show. And I said, oh, of course, come on. Uh, and he and I sat at the bar and when brother to brother, when you perform brother to brother, Al turned to me, it was loud. And he just kind of whispered in my ear. He said, I haven't heard effing music like this in years. I have chills running down my spine. <laughs> and of course he saw Jay do that solo. And after the show, he came to see you. We went backstage and he told Jay, he said, by the way, you're, you're kicking ass. And I could see on Jay's face, it's Al Demiola telling, you know, this, this younger guitarist that you yep. nailed it, pal. Yep. And there's no. a photo of you backstage with Al and yeah. my wife and I, uh, I, was, I was very stressed owning a jazz club. I was about 30 pounds heavier then. And that's why we closed it. <laughs> yeah. yeah well i you know it's a tough that's a tough night you know yeah, yeah. but i mean but, um, look uh the, the place was a great place we had a blast playing there oh thanks well so so i'll tell one short story because it it involves ross and that is so you were you were booked to perform at the grand opening mm -hmm. and um so that became the calendar and the schedule for our opening your performance that night mm -hmm. Of course, lo and behold, when you showed up that day for your sound check, we were still under construction. Yes, I remember and, that. And Ross turned to me, that Ross is, is Gino's brother, and he said, we're not playing here. And I said, why? And he said, we're not ready. And I said, Ross, do you trust me? I kind of felt like, you know, Aladdin. He said, yeah. I said, we'll be ready by showtime. Now, we, we were basically putting together furniture and cleaning right. windows and mirrors and doing last minute things. Um, and, uh, and then you throw me a curveball because you were on stage and I said, Gino, is there anything you need? Something that is maybe not right in the room that would make you, you know, feel better. He goes, yeah. You said, uh, yeah. Um, see those two columns over there? You really need to put some lights in there. I need some lights on the stage pointing towards me because you know, that, it's kind of dark. And I responded by saying, Gino, if it means that much to you, I will get it done. And I assumed you were going to say, nah, it's okay. Don't worry about it. He said, it means that much to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally got our engineers and the lighting people. I said, I want lights on those poles before the show. And they got it done. Oh, that's great. <laughs> You know, I can't remember those details, but, you know, um, lots of those things happen, uh, Michael, you know, with every show, there's every, every show, there's always some new hurdle, you know, to cross, to get over, you know, we, we just, we played somewhere, I think in the uh, Northern New York uh, state and uh, our flight was delayed and canceled. And we only got there the day of the show without sleep at, two o'clock in the afternoon just in time for sound check and and um there's where i tell some of my students now you can hit you know say a b flat well 
don't sleep and travel all night. See if you can hit it. Then that's when you know that you should pick the right keys for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so there's always something happening, you know, before, Absolutely. before a date or at the date. And uh, hopefully, all I can do is to, to tell you the truth, Michael, um, I, have, I have two objectives for the concert two most important objectives. And the first objective is that I need to please myself or else I won't do it. I, I just, mm -hmm. I, after all these years, it's just too painful to be doing either music I don't like or, or in a place I don't like or with a band I don't like. Uh, so if I'm pleased, I know I can actually sing better and give myself and be just all smiles you know, for the audience. That's one thing. The second of all, I want the audience to enjoy themselves, really enjoy themselves, and and not say, say this, have this feeling of well, it was a good show, and so on. I want them to be inspired. I want mm -hmm. them to feel like, hey, there are people on the stage that are really giving their lives, you know, for music, that are dedicating themselves to the arts, and that we, the reason why we're dedicating ourselves to the arts because we are not apes anymore. We have grown. <laughs> We are human beings, and that's what human beings should do. Think beyond themselves and feel beyond themselves. That's our greatest gift. And um, so when those two things are accomplished, um, I'm, I'm a happy camper. Yeah. So, so speaking of greatest gifts, what, what greatest gifts do we have coming our way? What, what, I'm, I'm sure you're working on 25, 50 songs right now for your yeah. next 10 albums. Yeah. Uh, give us a glimpse of what Gino Vanelli is working on these days and when we can hear it. Well, I'm going, I'm going to release, um, I think a, a, a mini, we're going to do a mini concert this, this uh, fall uh, on social media. And maybe it'll be three or four, con three or four songs, maybe five uh, with the band. That's what I'm planning. Uh, the second thing I'm planning is to record three or four songs um, put them out with videos, uh, July, August to record, and maybe put them out this fall sometime mm -hmm. or for Christmas. Um, <clears throat> I'm producing right now, finishing up a production for a student from Atlanta called Jeff Pike. He's a good singer, and um, he uh, wanted to record 12 songs of mine. And that, during this down period of uh, not traveling, not doing concerts, I said, okay, let's do it. And so it's really been a kick to actually rearrange and re-record 12 of my songs dating back to 1975 and and uh, to revisit them and, and modernize them. I'm still working on my uh, a novel and I'm still working on a, a libretto. Well, actually, I finished the libretto, but I haven't finished the music to it. Um, things planned. For the, when I get into my 70s, I really would like to finish the novel and the opera that I've been working on. And I could put aside touring for, for a little while and or at least put it aside forever and finish those things that are really our life work because these two things have been uh, on the table for the last 20 years. But I found that each time I go to one of these things, everything else falls by the wayside. Mm -hmm. I get so immersed into, into this novel and so immersed into this opera that everything else seems rather silly to me. Well, you, you, you write well. Actually, um, I enjoyed... Uh, reading this, oh, uh, and uh, yeah, and and it 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 showed me that you can write uh, words, and 
that usually comes in my experience for someone who reads a lot. You, you must read a lot. Yes. Uh, you know, if I was more inclined to read the humanities, uh, lots of poetry, poetry books. Um, I got very interested in the ageless wisdom, um, what some people would call the occult, but it's really not the occult. It's just, uh, you know, the, the, the history of, of religion, of worship, the history of how we think and feel and what we, when we look up, what do we think? You know, and when someone's at their deathbed, what do they feel? And when Steve Jobs is dying and he and he he sits up bolt right and goes, wow, wow, you know, what is he wowing? And and to an artist, you know, that that's very curious and you want to know because we, we plumb the depths all the time. And once in a while, um, in the last 40 years, I found myself close to that door that mm -hmm. we, you know, that we that most people stay away from. And I sort of courted it in, in, in a sense. With, with a healthy respect, but um, uh, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, I guess talking a little bit about religion and spirituality, um, you, you studied uh, different religions yeah. and you were born a Catholic, but you yeah. seem to know a lot about a lot of religions. And, well, um, that was by the, not by default, by by necessity, because I, you know, I, I could no longer believe in, in the, the the canonical side of Catholicism or actually religion itself. The rules and and the bylaws seemed awfully whimsical. They awfully they seemed to be at the whim of certain people, whether it be Pope Irenaeus in the third century or fourth century or. Pope Urban or this guy who said now priests should all be celibate by the sixth century. And so it, it seemed really, like I say, you know, at, at a whim. So what was the real truth? You know, what was it originally? What was the original recording? And um, so in, in that sense, you have to go back and read all the, all the scriptures, uh, the Nag Hammadi, the, 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 uh, the, you know, the, the Gnostic Gospels, there's 900 pieces. And there's, it's a, it takes a lot to get through them all, but you, it really shades uh, Jesus of Nazareth in, in, a, in a, to me, not in a different way, in a, in a much deeper way, in a, in a more uh, way that I think as a human being, you can let go a little bit of that kind of mysterious faith and say, well, what was it really like? What was he really thinking? And what did he really mean by this? And, and how close is it to really universal truth? Mm -hmm. At the same time, where did, you know, Gautama, Siddhartha come from, you know, and why did he do what he did? Well, you mm -hmm. come to find out that the, uh, the, in the Indus Valley, you know, how the, the Aryans were actually a tribe that, that came down from the Indus Valley and basically battled with the native uh, indigenous population of India and they won and they set their laws and bylaws and created what we see now as the Hindu religion. Mm -hmm. And they, they created a caste system, but their caste system was, you know, you're born of this level, that level, that level, you know, gold, silver, all that kind of stuff. If you're a, a, a worker, a, a merchant, a holy man, rich man, whatever. But the great thing about their system was that you could move into another slot. Mm -hmm. So create a system of competition or um, living up to your own mobile. 
Right. You're, yeah. And, and, and put, you're living up to your potential. By the time I got to Buddha's age, it was done. You could not move out of your caste. You could not be, you were, if you were an untouchable, you were an untouchable. If you weren't, you weren't. And so that's why a lot of religions come about when there's oppression. And there was oppression happening. And that's why part of this uh, thrust to, to, to really come to a better understanding of humanity was because of the oppression. And um, same thing in the time of Jesus, where, in, where the Romans were, were just basically slaughtering everybody. So the mood of wanting to find a Messiah was there for many, many years in, in Israel. And it's just that Jesus comes along and says, wait a minute, that's not the way to do it. This is the way to do it. You know, because because uh, I am who I am, whatever you want to believe. But the words are that if you if you go down this road, you'll be just like them and you'll it'll fall apart. But if you go down this road, something will happen. It'll bloom. And he was absolutely right about that. Time proved him right. So to me, the study, the historicity, what the what the original intention was, then you get a real appreciation of where religion or spirituality or plumbing the depths where that really comes from and it comes from very honest and uh, in many cases um souls that were giving willing to give up their lives and mm -hmm. i've had nothing but incredible curiosity and respect for, for the whole thing for the study of four thousand years the last four or five thousand years even like why why do certain symbols, geometric symbols, exist on some on some pottery that's in the four corners of the, of the world? Mm -hmm. And why are they the same geometric symbols? Where do they come from? And some of the pottery is five thousand, some of it ten thousand years old. That that curiosity is you know that there's universal universality to us, mm -hmm. and so. I, where today, especially in politics, especially in religion, people always try to plumb the differences between us. And I was always trying to understand the similarities, the commonalities that we all share. Because Absolutely. you don't die as a Democrat or Republican or independent, you die as a human being. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and if you think you're going to plumb those depths with a partisan attitude, you got we know that's not right. Something just hits you very wrong about all that. So discovering our humanity, and for me, uh, was through music, has been my lifelong goal. Well, music in many ways is your message. I, I noticed following you for all these years. It is, and uh, I, someone asked me what, what inspired me and what inspires me. When I was walking uh, to school one day, it was spring in Montreal, and I came upon a rose garden, and I saw a rose in bloom, in full bloom, with its head pointing towards the sun. It was like May. And I said to myself, I want to be like that rose. I want to bloom fully, and I want to point my head to the light, to the sun, and say, okay, it was not all in vain. You did your job, I did my job, and there's, there's life. You certainly and, did, Gino. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and um, and I, I, we so appreciate you joining us today. And it was great to catch up with you. I hope that our viewers caught a lot of 
interesting things about Gino Vanelli that you might not have known. And uh, check out the new album. It's uh, Wilderness. Wilderness Road. Wilderness Road. Um, yes. And that that didn't that come out like a, maybe a couple months ago? Uh, uh, seven, eight months ago. Yeah. Well, great. Well, again, Gino, great to talk to you. Hope we can do this again sometime. Okay, Michael, take care. Hey, you be well. All right, bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye.